Chapter 2 Herland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Heather Ordover, MamaOKnits.blogspot.com. Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Chapter 2 Rash Advances. Not more than ten or fifteen miles we judged it from our landing rock to that last village. For all our eagerness, we thought it wise to keep to the woods and go carefully. Even Terry's ardor was held in check by his firm conviction that there were men to be met, and we saw to it that each of us had a good stack of cartridges. They may be scarce, and they may be hidden away somewhere, some kind of matriarchate, as Jeff tells us. For that matter, they may live up in the mountains yonder and keep the women in this part of the country sort of a national harem. But there are men somewhere. Didn't you see the babies? We had all seen babies, children big and little, everywhere that we had come near enough to distinguish the people. And though by dress we could not be sure of all the grown persons, Still, there had not been one man that we were certain of. I always liked that Arab saying, First, tie your camel, and then trust the Lord, Jeff murmured, so we all had our weapons in hand and stole cautiously through the forest. Terry studied it as we progressed. Talk of civilization, he cried softly in restrained enthusiasm. I never saw a forest so petted even in Germany. Look, there's not a dead Oh, the vines are trained, actually trained. And see here? He stopped and looked about him, calling Jeff's attention to the kinds of trees. They left me for a landmark and made a limited excursion on either side. Food-bearing, practically all of them, they announced returning. The rest splendid hardwood. Call this a forest? It's a truck farm. Good thing to have a botanist on hand, I agreed. Sure there are no medicinal ones, or any for pure ornament? As a matter of fact, they were quite right. These towering trees were under as careful cultivation as so many cabbages. In other conditions, we should have found these woods full of fair foresters and fruit gatherers. But an airship is a conspicuous object, and by no means quiet. And women are cautious. All we found moving in those woods as we started through them were birds, some gorgeous, some musical, all so tame that it seemed almost to contradict our theory of cultivation, at least until we came upon occasional little glades, where carved stone seats and tables stood in the shade beside clear fountains, with shallow bird baths always added. They don't kill birds, and apparently they do kill cats, Terry declared. Must be men here. Hark! We had heard something, something not in the least like a bird song, and very much like a suppressed whisper of laughter. A little happy sound, instantly smothered. We stood like so many pointers, and then used our glasses swiftly, carefully. It couldn't have been far off, said Terry excitedly. How about this big tree? There was a very large and beautiful tree in the glade we had just entered, with thick, wide-spreading branches that sloped out in lapping fans like a beech or a pine. It was trimmed underneath some twenty feet up, and stood there, like a huge umbrella, with circling seats beneath. Look, 
he pursued. There are short stumps of branches left to climb on. There's someone up that tree, I believe. We stole near, cautiously. Look out for a poison arrow in your eye, I suggested. But Terry pressed forward, sprang up on the seat back, and grasped the trunk. In my heart, more likely, he answered. Gee, look, boys. We rushed close in and looked up. There, among the boughs overhead, was something. More than one something that clung motionless, close to the great trunk at first. And then, as one and all, we started up the tree, separated into three swift-moving figures and fled upward. As we climbed, we could catch glimpses of them scattering above us. By the time we had reached about as far as three men together dared push, they had left the main trunk and moved outward, each one balanced on a long branch that dipped and swayed beneath the weight. We paused, uncertain. If we pursued further, the boughs would break under the double burden. We might shake them off, perhaps, but none of us was so inclined. In the soft, dappled light of these high regions, breathless with our rapid climb, we rested a while eagerly studying our objects of pursuit, while they, in turn, with no more terror than a set of frolicsome children in a game of tag, sat as lightly as many a bright bird on their precarious perches, and frankly, curiously, stared at us. Girls, whispered Jeff under his breath, as if they might fly if he spoke too loud. Peaches, added Terry, scarcely louder. Peacherinos, apricot nectarines. Woohoo! They were girls, of course. No boys could ever have shown that sparkling beauty, and yet none of us was certain at first. We saw short hair, hatless, loose, and shining, a suit of some light, firm stuff, the closest of tunics and knee-breeches met by trim gaiters. As bright and smooth as parrots and as unaware of danger, they swung there before us, wholly at ease, staring as we stared, till first one, and then all of them, burst into peals of delighted laughter. Then there was a torrent of soft talk tossed back and forth, no savage sing-song but clear, musical, fluent speech. We met their laughter cordially, and doffed our hats to them, at which they laughed again, delightedly. Then Terry, wholly in his element, made a polite speech with explanatory gestures, and proceeded to introduce us with pointing finger. Mr. Jeff Margrave, he said clearly. Jeff bowed as gracefully as a man could do in the fork of a great limb. Mr. Van Dyke Jennings. I also tried to make an effective salute and nearly lost my balance. Then Terry laid his hand upon his own chest, a fine chest he had too, and introduced himself. He was braced carefully for the occasion and achieved an excellent obeisance. Again, they laughed delightedly and the one nearest me followed his tactics. Celis, she said distinctly, pointing to the one in blue. Alima, the one in rose. Then, with a vivid imitation of Terry's impressive manner, she laid a firm, delicate hand on her gold-green jerkin. Elador. This was pleasant, but we got no nearer. We can't sit here and learn the language, Terry protested. He beckoned to them to come nearer, most winningly, but they all gaily shook their heads. He suggested by signs that we all go down together, but again they shook their heads, still merrily. Then Elidor clearly indicated 
that we should go down, pointing to each and all of us with unmistakable firmness, and further seeming to imply by the sweep of a little arm that we were not only to go downward, but go away altogether, at which we shook our heads in turn. Have to use bait, grinned Terry. I don't know about you fellows, but I came prepared. He produced from an inner pocket a little box of purple velvet that opened with a snap, and out of it he drew a long sparkling thing, a necklace of big, varicolored stones that would have been worth a million if they were real. He held it up, swung it, glittering in the sun, offered it first to one, then to another, holding it out as far as he could reach toward the girl nearest him. He stood braced in the fork, held firmly by one hand. The other, swinging his bright temptation, reached far out along the bow, but not quite to his full stretch. She was visibly moved, I noted, hesitated, spoke to her companions. They chattered softly together, one evidently warning her, the other one encouraging. Then softly and slowly she drew nearer. This was Alima, a tall, long-limbed lass, well-knit, and evidently both strong and agile. Her eyes were splendid, wide, fearless, as free from suspicion as a child's who has never been rebuked. Her interest was more that of an intent boy playing a fascinating game than of a girl lured by an ornament. The others moved a bit farther out, holding firmly, watching. Terry's smile was irreproachable, but I did not like the look in his eyes. It was like a creature about to spring. I could already see it happen. The drop necklace, the sudden clutching hand, the girl's sharp cry as he seized her and drew her in. But it didn't happen. She made a timid reach with her right hand for the gay swinging thing. He held it a little nearer, then, swift as light, she seized it from him with her left and dropped on the instant to the bow below. He made a snatch, quite vainly, almost losing his position as his hand clutched only the air, and then, with inconceivable rapidity, the three bright creatures were gone. They dropped from the ends of the big boughs to those below, fairly pouring themselves off the tree, while we climbed downward as swiftly as we could. We heard their vanishing gay laughter. We saw them fleeting away in the wide open reaches of the forest, and gave chase, but we might as well have chased wild antelope. So we stopped at length, somewhat breathless. <sighs> no use, gasped Terry. They got away with it. My word, the men of this country must be good sprinters. Inhabitants, evidently arboreal, I grimly suggested. Civilized and still arboreal, peculiar people. You shouldn't have tried it that way. Jeff protested. They were perfectly friendly. Now we've scared them. But it was no use grumbling, and Terry refused to admit any mistake. Nonsense, he said. They expected it. Women like to be run after. Come on, let's go get to that town. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll find them there. Let's see. It was in uh, this direction, and not far from the woods, as I remember. When we reached the edge of the open country, we reconnoitered with our field glasses. There it was, about four miles off. The same town, we concluded, unless, as Jeff ventured, they all had pink houses. The broad green fields and closely cultivated gardens sloped away at our feet, a long, easy slant with good roads winding pleasantly here and there, and narrower paths besides. Look at that, cried Jeff suddenly. There they go. 
Sure enough, close to town, across a wide meadow, three bright-hued figures were running swiftly. How could they have gotten that far in this time? It can't be the same ones, I urged. But through the glasses we could identify our pretty tree-climbers quite plainly, at least by costume. Terry watched them. We all did, for that matter, till they disappeared among the houses. Then he put down his glass and turned to us, drawing a long breath. Mother of Mike, boys, what gorgeous girls! To climb like that, to run like that, and afraid of nothing. This country suits me all right. Let's get ahead. Nothing ventured, nothing have, I suggested, but Terry preferred faint heart in her one fair lady. We set forth in the open, walking briskly. If there are any men, we better keep an eye out, I suggested. But Jeff seemed lost in heavenly dreams, and Terry in highly practical plans. What a perfect road! What a heavenly country! See the flowers, will you? This was Jeff, always an enthusiast, but we could agree with him fully. The road was some sort of hard manufactured stuff, sloped slightly to shed rain, with every curve and grade and gutter as perfect as if it were Europe's best. No men, huh? sneered Terry. On either side a double row of trees shed footpaths. Between the tree bushes or vines, all fruit-bearing, now and then, seats and little wayside fountains. Everywhere, flowers. We'd better import some of these ladies and set them up to parking in the United States, I suggested. Mighty nice place they've got here. We rested a few moments by one of the fountains, tested the fruit that looked ripe, and went on, impressed for all our gay bravado by the sense of quiet potency which lay about us. Here was evidently a people highly skilled, efficient, caring for their country as a florist cares for his costliest orchids. Under the soft, brilliant blue of that clear sky, in the pleasant shade of those endless rows of trees, we walked unharmed, the placid silence broken only by the birds. Presently there lay before us, at the foot of a long hill, the town or village we were aiming for. We stopped and studied it. Jeff drew a long breath. I wouldn't have believed a collection of houses could look so lovely, he said. They've got architects and landscape gardeners in plenty, that's for sure, agreed Terry. I was astonished myself. You see, I come from California, and there's no country lovelier. But when it comes to towns, I've often groaned at home to see the offensive mess man made in the face of nature, even though I'm no art sharp like Jeff. But this place, it, it was built mostly of a sort of dull rose-colored stone, with here and there some clear white houses, and it lay abroad among the green groves and gardens, like a broken rosary of pink coral. Those big white ones are public buildings, evidently, Terry declared. This is no savage country, my friend, but no men? Boys, it behooves us to go forward most politely. The place had an odd look, more impressive as we approached. It's like an exposition. It's too pretty to be true. Plenty of palaces, but where are the homes? Oh, there are little ones enough, but, well, it certainly was different from any towns we had ever seen. There's no dirt, Jeff said suddenly. There's no smoke, he added after a little. There's no noise, I offered, but Terry snubbed me. That's because they're lying low for us. We better be careful how we go in there. 
Nothing could induce him to stay out, however, so we walked on. Everything was beauty, order, perfect cleanness, and the pleasantest sense of home over it all. As we neared the center of the town, the houses stood thicker, ran together, as it were, grew into rambling palaces grouped among parks and open squares. Something as college buildings stand in their quiet greens. And then, turning a corner, we came into a broad paved space and saw before us a band of women standing close together in even order, evidently waiting for us. We stopped a moment and looked back. The street behind was closed by another band, marching steadily, shoulder to shoulder. We went on, there seemed no other way to go, and presently found ourselves quite surrounded by this closed-massed multitude, women, all of them. But they were not young, they were not old, they were not, in the girl sense, beautiful. They were not in the least ferocious, and yet, as I looked from face to face, calm, grave, wise, wholly unafraid, evidently assured and determined, I had the funniest feeling, a very early feeling, a feeling that I traced back and back in my memory until I caught up with it at last. It was that sense of being hopelessly in the wrong that I had so often felt in early youth when my short leg's utmost effort failed to overcome the fact that I was late to school. Jeff felt it, too. I could see that he did. We felt like small boys, very small boys, caught doing mischief in some gracious lady's house. But Terry showed no such consciousness. I saw his quick eyes darting here and there, estimating numbers, measuring distances, judging chances of escape. He examined the close ranks about us, reaching back far on every side, and murmured softly to me, Every one of them over forty, as I'm a sinner. Yet they were not old women. Each was in the full bloom of rosy health, erect, serene, standing sure-footed and light as any pugilist. They had no weapons, and we had, but we had no wish to shoot. I'd soon as shoot my aunts, muttered Terry again. What do they want with us, anyhow? They seem to mean business. But in spite of that business-like aspect, he determined to try his favorite tactics. Terry had come armed with a theory. He stepped forward with his brilliant, ingratiating smile and made low obeisance to the women before him. Then he produced another tribute, a broad, soft scarf of filmy texture, rich in color and pattern, a lovely thing, even to my eye, and offered it with a deep bow to the tall, unsmiling woman who seemed to head the ranks before him. She took it with a gracious nod of acknowledgment and passed it on to those behind her. He tried again this time bringing out a circlet of rhinestones, a glittering crown that should have pleased any woman on earth. He made a brief address, including Jeff and me as his partners in his enterprise, and with another bow presented this. Again his gift was accepted, and, as before, passed out of sight. If they were only younger, he muttered between his teeth, what on earth is a fellow to say as a regiment of old colonels like this? In all our discussions and speculations, we had always unconsciously assumed that the women, whatever else they might be, would be young. Most men do think that way, I fancy. Woman, in the abstract, is young, and we assume charming. 
as they get older, they pass off the stage somehow into private ownership, mostly, or out of it altogether. But these good ladies were very much on the stage, and yet any one of them might have been a grandmother. We looked for nervousness. There was none. For terror, perhaps. There was none. For uneasiness? For curiosity? For excitement? And all we saw was what might have been a vigilance committee of women doctors, as cool as cucumbers, and evidently meaning to take us to task for being there. Six of them stepped forward now, one on either side of each of us, and indicated that we were to go with them. We thought it best to accede, at first anyway, and marched along, one behind these close at each elbow, and the others in close masses before, behind on both sides. A large building opened before us, a very heavy, thick-walled, impressive place, big and old-looking, of grey stone, not like the rest of the town. "'This won't do,' said Terry to us quickly. "'We mustn't let us get them in this, boys. All together now.' We stopped in our tracks. We began to explain, to make signs, pointing away toward the big forest, indicating that we would go back to it at once. "'It makes me laugh, knowing all I do now, to think of us three boys, nothing else.' Three audacious, impertinent boys, butting into an unknown country without any sort of guard or defense. We seemed to think that if there were men, we could fight them, and if there were only women, why, they would be no obstacles at all. Jeff, with his gentle, romantic, old-fashioned notions of women as clinging vines, Terry, with his clear, decided, practical theories, that there were two kinds of women, those he wanted and those he didn't. Desirable and undesirable was his demarcation. The latter is large a class, but negligible. He had never thought about them at all. And now here they were, in great numbers, evidently indifferent to what he might think, evidently determined on some purpose of their own regarding him, and apparently well able to enforce their purpose. We all thought hard just then. It had not seemed wise to object to going with them, even if we could have. Our one chance was friendliness, a civilized attitude on both sides. But once inside that building, there was no knowing what these determined ladies might do to us. Even a peaceful detention was not to our minds, and when we named it imprisonment, it looked even worse. So we made a stand trying to make clear that we preferred the open country. One of them came forward with a sketch of our flyer, asking by signs if we were the aerial visitors they had seen. This we admitted. They pointed to it again, and to the outlying country, in different directions. But we pretended we did not know where it was, and in truth we were not quite sure, and gave a rather wild indication of its whereabouts. Again they motioned us to advance standing so packed about the door that there remained but the one straight path opened. All around us and behind they were massed solidly. There was simply nothing to do but go forward or fight. We held a consultation. I've never fought with women in my life, said Terry, greatly perturbed, but I'm not going in there. I'm not going to be herded in as if I were in a cattle chute. We can't fight them, of course, Jeff urged. They're all women, in spite of their nondescript clothes. Nice women, too. Good, strong, sensible faces. I guess we'll have to go in. We may never get out of it if we do, I told them. 
Strong and sensible, yes, but I'm not sure about the good. Look at those faces. They had stood at ease, waiting while we conferred together, but never relaxing their close attention. Their attitude was not the rigid discipline of soldiers. There was no sense of compulsion about them. Terry's term of a vigilance committee was highly descriptive. They had just the aspect of sturdy burkers, gathered hastily to meet some common need or peril, all moved by precisely the same feelings, to the same end. Never anywhere before had I seen women precisely this quality. Fishwives and market women might show similar strength, but it was a coarse and heavy strength. These were merely athletic women, light and powerful, College professors, teachers, writers, many women showed similar intelligence, but often wore a strained, nervous look, while these were as calm as cows for all their evident intellect. We observed pretty closely just then, for all of us felt that it was a crucial moment. The leader gave some word of command and beckoned us on, and the surrounding mass moved a step nearer. "'We've got to decide quick,' said Terry. "'I vote to go in,' Jeff urged." but we were two to one against him, and he loyally stood by us. We made one more effort to be let go, urgent, but not imploring. Now for a rush, boys, Terry said, and if we can't break them, I'll shoot in the air. Then we found ourselves much in the position of the suffragette, trying to get the Parliament buildings through a triple cordon of London police. The solidarity of these women was something amazing. Terry soon found that it was useless, tore himself loose for a moment, pulled his revolver, and fired upward. As they caught at it, he fired again. We heard a cry. Instantly, each of us was seized by five women, each holding arm or leg or head. We were lifted like children, straddling helpless children, and borne onward, wriggling indeed, but most ineffectually. We were born inside, struggling manfully, but held secure, most womanfully, in spite of our best efforts. So carried and so held, we came into a high inner hall, gray and bare, and were brought before a majestic gray-haired woman, who seemed to hold a judicial position. There was some talk, not much, among them, and then suddenly there fell upon each of us at once a firm hand holding a wetted cloth before our mouth and nose, an order of swimming sweetness, anesthesia. End chapter 2